0: I'm telling you, bro. What's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting the more Peggy old? Hi, my name is Shane terrio and you are listening to The Riff raft music, stories, and insights from the front line.
1: Riff
0: <laughs> Riff Everybody, Thanks for tuning back in to Riff Raff Back at it with another episode Yeah, thank you so much for your comments and I get so many nice emails now It's like this thing has hit a uh, tipping point or something I don't know Sitting here, finishing this episode In London, England, which doesn't feel right Because it was conducted in Lafayette, Louisiana But both fine, fine cities So anyway, let's get to it. My guest today is Mr. Sonny Landreth, and Sonny is a singer, songwriter, and guitar player who, in my opinion, is the most innovative slide guitar player ever. And if you don't give a crap about my opinion, just ask Eric Clapton, Mark Knopfler, Robin Ford, or as many, many legions of guitar fans. I first got hip to Sonny when I got a copy of his record called Outward Bound, which I really love to this day. He's had a really long, successful career as a solo artist. He's got many, many solo records to his name, including the most recent one, Live in Lafayette, which we'll talk about in this podcast. It's a very hip, double CD, double record, double whatever it is these days. I've known Sonny for quite a while, and we've uh, done occasional recording sessions together for other people and he also guested it on my solo record dirty power on a tune called mr ed but i didn't know a lot of this stuff i'm about to you're about to hear it was really fun getting to pick his brain a bit so we talk about how he met hendrix and early influences he got a Dumble amp I ask him about all that stuff you'll hear so on a weekday i drove out to lafayette louisiana it's about two hours west of new orleans got stuck in major traffic all kinds of delays i finally walk into the studio Sonny's longtime engineer tony daigle standing by has me all hooked up in a fender deluxe and Sonny's hooked up to his uh an old fender basement or something and plug in and let her rip So how does somebody from Bro Bridge, Louisiana, by way of Mississippi, become the most original slide guitar player on the planet? Well, stay tuned and find out. This anyway,
2: sweet. So man, you know, you know about
0: an apologist. This is live TV, man. This is live TV. sonny Sounding great as always man
2: we're back at you
0: this (laughs) is the uh the afternoon groove the afternoon post traffic jam (laughs) post getting stuck behind a uh uh, a wide load (laughs) thing for like 40 miles sorry for my tardiness
2: the i-10 hustle oh man we all deal with it going back and forth about yeah
0: you've done it you're a veteran of that for sure um (laughs) you know it's cool man it's taking the drive over here though I get to unwind and I put in Outward Bound which I haven't heard in years love that record neither (laughs) have I (laughs) yeah yeah, it's one of my favorites of yours and I put it you know this I got to tell the people that are listening there's nothing like listening to uh, back to Bayou Tesh when you're actually crossing Bayou Tesh it's kind of like if you were listening to Wheel in the Sky by Journey and going across like the Golden Gate Bridge or something well that's cool <laughs> you know what i mean it's like <laughs> probably not but but uh but anyway man thanks for doing this you know my little hobby here And yeah, you uh, bet yeah i want to just tell the people let's see how first time i met you was uh it was the Teresa theresa anderson record I was oh, working right. on this yeah. Teresa Anderson right. record. That's right. And she wanted to get a uh, resonator or something in Yeah. I was like, I could do it or we could just call Sonny Landreth. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was really awesome. You know, and, and too for me, uh, that was the first time I worked with Teresa in any fashion or form. I was just totally blown away with her voice.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. And that track we did together, it was uh we cut it live. I don't know if you remember yeah,
2: that. I do. Yeah you mm-hmm.
0: have a little uh, notebook where I jot down an outline, and I started to do that last night. And in all my haste leaving New Orleans this morning, I left it. So
2: it's okay. We'll just wing it. We'll
0: wing it. I know enough about you where I can piece something <laughs> together and some cookies, Enough for blackmail. <laughs> don't need a
2: notebook for that.
0: It's good seeing you down here, man, in the motherland. I'm in Bro Bridge, Louisiana, sitting at Tony Daigle's studio. It, what is the name of this studio is it still electric como land yeah electric yeah. como land tony has uh been man he's a great engineer he's been a friend and engineer of yours for,
2: oh, many, man, for many, years. many many years yep. we've done a, a ton of work together and pretty much all of my albums since uh the mid-90s um he came on board out of dockside and when i started working out there um uh, uh some years later and just a lot of great things came together uh working with tony and uh starting to work with bobby charles and and i got um bobby field out there uh, my producer back in the bmg days uh that would have been uh 1992 for outward bound you mentioned rs that. field he's great yeah, rs field I was, yeah, wondering he's, who that he's was. one of a kind man genius br- brilliant and just funny and He's, um, we, we did, um, that and, um, uh, South of I-10. And uh, so it was my Zoo Praxis BMG days and, <clears throat> but we had a lot of fun and Tony and I, we worked on all that stuff and, and then post after that, we, um, done all of my albums since.
0: Yeah. Well, you always get great guitar sounds every, anywhere but it's cool to be in here where you cut your stuff, you know? also i was thinking about I, I had to take i had to try to learn some of your parts when i was playing with zachary richard oh, and goodness. some of those tunings were <laughs> really I, I couldn't figure them out there was one it was like a
2: minor kind of d yeah, minor sort of it tuning. was like a minor ninth tuning it, oh, man, cool. it really was yeah zach you know um it, that afforded me the opportunity on those uh like on that session with those tracks um but his kind of from his singer-songwriter perspective, just kind of went for something different than I'd done. Because it, actually back in the early days with Zach in 1980, uh, I had left Clifton Chenier's band uh, out in California. Sounds odd to say that, but I did. And um, and then went to Canada for the first time with Zach. Um, and I had a great band um with uh, Craig Leger on keyboards, uh, Shelton Saunier on bass, and Mike Bennet on drums, and just four-piece mm-hmm. backup band for him. But the first thing we did is go to Montreal and uh, cut a live album. Yeah, live and, in Montreal. But we, uh, we did a lot of rehearsing, playing some gigs locally. and um, So I really owe that experience to him and, and sort of turning me loose in the other countries like that. And then exposed me um to his the way that he played the traditional songs, which he never he's never done anything, like he would always change that up in such a way that was rocking it out more and that gave me um the opportunity to play both straight guitar and slide on those songs and then um later with his more of a singer songwriter material, kinda of delve into some deeper stuff with the tunings.
0: Yeah, that was really interesting because I got to work through work with them quite a bit, and um, so I'm familiar with a lot of that stuff. Couldn't figure all of it out, but I remember Zachary told me one time I asked him about your that that record, and he said, "Well, Sonny used to just show up with a little red pedal, which I'm assuming was a DynaCom." Yeah, it was a DynaCom,
2: <laughs> yeah, was it pretty much really back Yeah, then you, I did. I mean, I had um, I had my Gibson Firebird, '64 Firebird. Um, and from that I went into the Dynacomp and the Dynacomp into Echoplex and the Echoplex into fifty watt Marshall Head mm. early seventies. got stolen at Grant Street many years later. Ugh. And through um well, well, you know through one of these that and two of these bandmaster cabs and uh and one of them had JBL twelves in evolved things. And that's what I used to play through. That's all I yeah, you know, that's all I played through. Um in fact, that's what I cut uh, that uh, live in Montreal album, and a lot of the other. Uh, uh, we did some tracks in Bogalusa um, for that album. About yeah. then, my my 50 watt got stolen. I uh, oh, bought a hundred watt.
0: And Zachary was a guest on this, and we, well, I actually played a track from. We had a little. He talked about you for a few minutes, and I played some stuff from that oh, record. I didn't know. I knew you were with Clifton Chenier. I, I didn't know if that was before Zach or after Zach. So that was before. So. It was
2: right before, yeah. I started playing with Cliff in 79. Played with him for about a year, a little over a year, and then segued into playing with Zach. And, uh, but then I would go back and play with Cliff off and on for like three, three and a half years. Mm-hmm. His health was really failing in, at that point, unfortunately. But um, but I got in on a, a, sort of the tail end of that before it got really bad for him and um, he actually he played uh, when he started playing again after his surgery they had to operate on him uh, from um, um, and he was on dialysis um, but he uh, he couldn't play accordion yet so he had his cousin playing accordion and Cliff played harp wow he played harp and sang it was awesome Mm -hmm. yeah killer band of course So that was uh, really my education. That was school. Yeah, that was school for me. That's the best schooling I ever had. Yeah. I'll bet, man.
0: And when you, your your style, I mean, I know you've probably done a ton of interviews and talked about this, but listening outward bound and stuff, man, it's so you. I mean, you come up, you've got this whole, like how does somebody from Brobridge, Louisiana become one of the most recognizable slide? I mean, because really... I would say we're friends and stuff, but all that aside, man, your sound is like, you, you hear one note, you know it's you. Like, how do you how'd you come up with that vocabulary? I mean, was it a, did the accordion influence your?
2: Yeah, sure. Because I, I can I think, hear, like, where yeah. you're kind of emulating maybe some of the. A lot of, like, the instrumentation in the area. Um, I actually uh, started out on trumpet. That was my first mm. instrument. And I played that through, that was my academic instrument and through, um, school and college which was great because then when I started playing guitar I would have been 13 my first guitar um really came at it with a different perspective I think thinking more like a wind instrument player where hmm. you have to take a breath and it's more that phrasing involved so I, looking back on it um I think that was good for me and then I had uh exposure to classical and jazz and you know, like stage music and yeah. reading and, and... Just enough of to dynamics, Enough to get me into trouble, by the yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> But I had a... And I loved all kinds of music. And growing up here and with the Cajun Zydeco and, and we'd go to New Orleans when I was a little, a lot. My dad actually graduated from Tulane uh, way, way back ago. And uh, so that's when I first heard... Um, jazz and r&b and second line so this as you know the wonderful thing about living here and particularly to be raised here uh, the culture is so strong and music is such a big part of that identity and i didn't know any different i mean it's just the way it was here and i think by osmosis or um you know the humidity or the gumbo or all right. the above something right. it all you take all that in and what's great about that, when you're a kid, you you don't have any preconceived notions. So it's a clean slate, and you're just assimilating all of that. So that by the time I did, um, uh, started approaching the slide, then I had a way to, I don't know if that makes any sense, but a way to crystallize all that. Yeah. Because I felt comfortable with different playing in different styles and different genres, but That's a good thing. And it's also, you can get scattered. You can get in too many directions at once. And I always wanted to write my own songs and I always wanted to have my own sound. Hmm. So that helped me to pull all that together in a more uniform fashion uh, in terms of using chordal tunings, open tunings, uh, Learned listening to... I mean, because there's nobody
0: that I know of around here. You know, I grew up not that far away from here, but I don't... It's amazing that it's not like you know they had anybody that sounded anything like what you sound like, yeah, it's, I don't hear any derivative things like what well, you know what Alman it's interesting you kind of.
2: should say that because I think that too helped me. the fact that yeah. there wasn't anybody there were no great slide guitar players that I looked up to I mean certainly there were tons of heroes on records, sure but, yeah. listening to records, but there wasn't anyone I could go out and hear um and at that point um in my late teens i was very adventurous as we all were and back in those days long before um being able to go online and, and pull up anything you had to go find that person right. and, and listen to him on a gig and i met bb king i met Clifton chenere and i met jimmy hendrix all within a little over a year wow i and, didn't know that yeah <laughs> where'd you so meet hendrix at in Baton rouge wow. um First, and I read about B.B. Uh, and others, you know, the great bluesman, through these interviews with Eric Clapton. hmm I was a big Eric Clapton fan by then, and and he would talk about them in his interviews. And then I, and I noticed, wow, B.B. Kings playing in New Iberia. <laughs> it's like 20 miles south of Lafayette. There's a little club called Leo's Rendezvous, and he was still doing the chitlin circuit, basically. Um so, I went down there with a friend of mine and that uh, just blew my mind. And uh, and then he took a break. And uh, uh, he was sitting at the bar, which is literally about 15 feet from the bandstand. <laughs> 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 and he was playing for as if he had been 20,000 people in there, you know. It was a little black club and uh, they loved him, but there weren't a lot of people in there. Yeah. So, anyway, I went up and started talking to him and. Uh, and that's kind of what happened uh, with Clifton. Uh, I heard about this guy that played blues on the accordion, and I couldn't imagine that. You know? mm. uh, accordion to me was like, you know, I just I never would have put the two together. So, Was it a Cajun accordion or a well, big no, Zydeco? Well, it a thing. piano accordion. Okay. Yeah, the he played the big Zydecal piano chord. accordion. Yeah. 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 That was his Cromatic. thing. Chromatic. And um, that was, uh, I think a part of his sound was so, so big and had... He was always changing the you know stops up and getting different harmonics, yeah, and like a B3 or something yeah, he, really, he really did. And he, um, anyway, so he saw us at the door, and uh, only two white kids there. It was at a, uh, the Blue Angel Club, which was kind of his headquarters, it was down the street from his house. Uh, years later when i would play with him uh that's the only way i ever found out anything that was going on with the band i never knew where these places were we were going to play i'd call up the blue angel <laughs> and the manager would tell me where we we're playing <laughs> and how to get there in the middle of a cane field yeah. you know north of opelousas or something um but that's how i met clifton and the same thing happened with hendrix and baton rouge We, my buddies and i went over early during the day and trying to find him and we did he was in a, a hotel right next to the venue which was independence hall and he was upstairs he had a real to real tape player going and what later i i think sounded like some of the tracks on electric ladyland oh and this would have been in 68 wow so this big english uh, big english road manager whoever runs us all off and we're two of us were hiding in the gift shop um, and then walks Hendricks He came in to buy like a toothbrush and get some toothpaste or something. So we go, well, here we go. Yeah. Here I go again. So we walk up to Hendricks and introduce, introduce ourselves. It's pretty classic. But, um, I think those experiences, he, how like was that. it? Was he cool? Oh yeah, to- he was totally cool, but he was pretty out of it, man. He was, he was standing there he's like, his hair is all messed up and, Thing that uh, surprised me—he wasn't as tall as I thought he was going to be. Yeah. But his fingers were so long. When I shook his hand, I couldn't believe how long uh. his fingers were. And um, so I didn't know what to say. I just I just, just popped out of my you know, in my head and out of my mouth. I said, well, um, what did I say something. Like, Tell us, Jimmy. Uh, what is well, what does Axis is look? And so he's like, <laughs> he had his teeth. He his hand up over his head like a <laughs> toothbrush and toothpaste. <laughs> oh man it's kind of like um <laughs> uh, it's kind of like the love for a man he's just and making a woman it up and totally making symbog- everything up oh, i don't know man i just woke up you know, and <laughs> <just> walks off <laughs> and so uh that was my early lesson getting a good uh uh behind the scenes picture of living on the road yeah you because know? of course at that age you glorify the whole thing yeah. Wow. And I got to be friends with Noel Redding many years later, and he mm-hmm. he well remembered that gig. And um, they Jimmy didn't know that he was supposed to play two shows that night, uh-huh. so he wasn't real happy about that. And then some of the people in the audience were jerks. And
0: I mean, how long were the shows back then? Like thirty minutes or something? Well,
2: he played uh, the first show. He played longer. The second show, maybe forty five minutes, because yeah. he got he got pissed, and then he just and he walked off stage, but. It was still enough to blow my mind.
0: I used to see Mitch Mitchell and I used to see Noel Redding too, but uh, Mitch Mitchell used to have cartage in Nashville. and I used to have my stuff at this cartage place. And I'd, I'd go in to get an amp or something and I'd see the drums. Mitch Mitchell would be like, wow, but wow, I never cool. saw him. I didn't really know him. And one day he was there <laughs> and some guy was like garming him hard and asking him all these Hendrix stuff. And he was trying to be patient. And then basically he cut the guy off. He goes, Listen, from 68 through this, he goes, I I don't remember anything. (laughs) He goes, I don't remember anything. I'm sorry. It's completely gone. It's gone.
2: (laughs) Well, you can understand that. You know, hearing the stories. Yeah, so I, I really, coming back to it, I didn't really have any, there wasn't like a master slide guitar player around that I could go study. So I think that really helped me. It, it pushed me to find my own identity. And, and by hearing B.B. King and Hendrix and Clifton and, and listening to a lot of lot of music all the time Mm -hmm. just checking um checking other musicians out and it's a really formative point in 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 a kid's life and i think um that in the big picture helped me to find my own way because then i was working in a music store local music store prof ernie's oh wow yeah i grew up in that store basically which was great for me exposure to everything that was happening all the band directors would go there to buy their music they had uh albums they had 45s um they had all the band instruments they had a room full of guitars and they had a a kid raymond deku was um, he was going to be a senior in high school and i was going to be a freshman it was that summer before and he um He's the one that taught me how to play Chad Atkins style. You see, have you ever heard of Chad Atkins? I said, well, yeah, I've heard of him. And he sits down and he starts playing these So that's solo where the pieces. thumb pick came that's in? That's what all of this mm-hmm. stuff. The right-hand technique is mm-hmm. totally from what Raymond showed me how to do, um, mm. you know, play Chad Atkins songs. And then I would tackle one of the songs and then play for him, you know, a couple of days later. And I was just trying to get that, you know, that going.
0: Yeah, the independent base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to get that going. That's hard to do, man.
2: Yeah, i have never done anything like that, boy, you yeah. know? And um, so I'd work on it, and he'd check me out. And he'd give me pointers, and, and then I just dove headlong. Headlong. I didn't that. know you
0: were in the chat like Oh, that.
2: yeah, big time. Did you ever get the Yankee Doodle Dixie thing? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and that was could, that was my first greatest accomplishment on the guitar. <laughs> I remember because he played that. Yeah, he played for me. Like, oh, I, I watched two songs at the same time. You oh, yeah. You're,
0: you're and then so. Chet used to say, "Well, tonight Dixie's going to be on the low strings."
2: Yeah, and you know it's just amazing
0: <laughs> how he could do that. I never.
2: Yeah, that was uh, that was a big. Uh, so, but what was great? It it taught me solo guitar, thinking in terms of multiple parts like a melody you know bass part and a rhythm and all at the same time mm-hmm. and to think like that but up until then I, I hadn't it was all like try to play lead or learn chords and, but not not something on that level so uh, by the time i started listening to the delta cats you know delta blues and, and that's the way i heard that i said oh, well i could take that thumb style approach you know finger style of the chat's and when I started working with the slide um, for the left hand, and it was kind of putting the two of those together that uh, really helped to set me on my way. And um, hmm. from that point on, that's when I started uh, kind of take everything in and, and interpret it in, in that light. I didn't know any of this stuff. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I didn't know anything about Chet.
0: I'm quoting from Outward Bound because I had that in the car today. But a lot of people know you, particularly for your slide playing. But there's a lot of single-note stuff on that record, too, man. I mean, there's some great solos on there. Who were who are some of your influences? I mean, I, I think you said Ry Cooter one time. You liked oh, Ry yeah. Cooter. yeah, Ry Cooter. But yeah. just for single-note stuff, too. I mean, who who else did you listen
2: to? Well, Like with Flat Pick, the straight yeah. playing Yeah, and all. Yeah, uh, B.B. was big. um uh, also, Wes Montgomery. I was a big mm. West Montgomery fan. I never could get it, but it it sometimes when it's something that's complex and um, so incredible like that, you you may not be able to play it, but it it informs you somehow that you turn that into something else. And I, I did a a lot of that because I never could really play like anybody else. I never to my satisfaction, but. Um, Michael Bloomfield was big mm. into him mm. when he came out on the scene. Uh, the good thing about playing in a band with older kids—they were already into stuff I didn't know about—and they were turning me on to all these great players back in the '60s. And then uh, they had the um, uh, the New Orleans Pop Festival, which was actually outside of Gonzales, and then all these the great bands of the day. Uh, a lot of them played on that. Um, uh, Chicago Transit Authority, before mm. there was Chicago, Janis Joplin, Airplane, The Dead, uh, The Birds of Clarence White. Wow. I the first I heard yeah. Clarence White, and that blew my mind. All these great groups. But so all of those guitar players, you know, I was hearing, picking up on all of that. So my single note um, work came from, I think, hearing how they did that, and at the same time, I was still... Um, Influenced by my jazz heroes, like Miles Davis and Coltrane and Arnett Coleman. Um, I was into all the big band stuff with mm-hmm. Basie. I got to hear Count Basie and Duke Ellington. Um, and um, another great thing about being close to New Orleans. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's really... <laughs> it a- was a long
2: time ago. You know? So they yeah. were still at it. and um, But the fact that with the um, wind instrument players thinking... Um, wanting to emulate the human voice with their instrument. So when I would hear somebody like Bloomfield or um, Johnny Winter, and I, we heard about him and had to go drive to Texas to hear him play, and you know, all of these were life-changing moments, yeah. then I would think, like uh, like a wind instrument player, how it would take that <clears throat> sort of a, like their style, but how, you know, I'd still f- phrasing-wise... Um, I think that my, I recognized later that my blues heroes and my jazz heroes were all striving to do the same thing, to emulate the human voice with their instrument. And I think that was the thing that um, caught me uh, so much with Sly guitar because that even more so to my ear, there was that lyrical vocal quality about mm-hmm.
0: it. That makes total sense. yeah else? let
2: me um now I have a new cable let me see yeah, she got a new cable new improved got a lot of
0: presence now
1: this
0: should we stay in G or you want me to play something different
2: it doesn't matter we can go something else song, re or just no you know,
0: um I'm just thinking something <clears throat> D something D E We start. I want to ask you when you hit those notes, those real high, like you swell up to these notes, and they just sing. Like I, I mean, how do you get that thing to to just swell like that? Well, the the slide,
2: yeah, because of the the fact that you know the frets aren't choking it out. But but it's uh, and it's heavier gauge too, thirteen to fifty. Well, I mean,
0: I have all that stuff too. It doesn't sound like <laughs> that. I mean, I know all that stuff. Just,
2: it's just this, this thing uh, you have. Man, it's like a thing. <laughs> it's it's a feel thing where you. Yeah, like it blooms, you know, at a certain point. So what I'm a... doing is, here, if I didn't use anything back behind the slide. So you're lifting
0: your your index yeah, that, and middle that, finger off, yeah. It's yeah, sort of so
2: you you lift it enough that you see this third finger's not really touching that mm-hmm. string. It's helping to control the motion and for intonation. Yeah, back sort of anchoring, like it's kind of it goes with the slide a lot. I use that finger and the slide together. If you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so my third finger, and my fourth finger are. Uh, a bit synonymous, as it mm-hmm. were, and
0: in motion. Yeah, they can't see, so the slides on your pinky. So
2: that way you can, you can, you can, um, <clears throat> you can mute behind the slide like that, just with one finger. But what you're catching is this. Yeah.
0: And then you also sort of invented that that behind the slide technique too, where you.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, this, well. This. Yeah, I was doing. A, a, I'm tuned to minor right now, but that—that that was what happened. I, I could see the notes back there. Get all the extensions and things. So that's a combination. Um, um, I have three strings that are the floating with the slide. Mm-hmm. In this case, mm-hmm. what I just played. And I'm reaching back behind the slide the fret <clears throat> so that way the string goes underneath right and uh, you have a combination of one fret a note in this case with M and in G, I'm in G so that's an F and then here's a G there's a D there's another G with a high D on top That helps get that sustained yeah. about that like you just lift it enough that you you get it makes a more complex sound and, yeah and absolutely just, and um and just have to let it just let it soar you know that that's what i'm talking about it just has this it
0: just sort of peaks and you know yeah. it's got this beautiful yeah, you want to have a bloom it. It And it just yep. so,
2: and and that's part of that getting back to the um vocal quality you know that i I love Mm -hmm. so much about playing slide
0: and you also do this thing where you take your palm and i could never figure that out yeah how the hell do you
2: do that (laughs) well what happens is the fact that it it would not occur to someone that's playing like you know standard guitar because your strings are the range of motion uh, are dictated by uh, placing fretting the strings. So there's no distance really yeah. between the string and the fret. If you follow what I'm saying, with slide, those notes. I just did all that without touching any frets. Mm-hmm. So there's that distance between the slide and those the notes that are floating in the fretboard. So what that means, you can actually push on it more than you would think mm. there's that range uh in between uh the top Well, it would be the bottom of the string if you follow what i'm saying um and the actual fretboard that you can push on the strings and you're not gonna it's not gonna break it's not gonna hurt it and it's and you can control um those harmonics on the back side as well <laughs> So yeah. you can control the speed, intensity, and how many harmonics you pick up with it changes. It's kind of like it a, looks
0: really trippy too to watch it. It looks like you. It doesn't look like you can actually. Yeah, because you because I'm thinking more fretted technique. Yeah, it, yeah, and
2: that's that's the difference. And mm-hmm. um, it gives you that um, uh, the potential to create those sounds because of the distance in between the uh, the strings and the and the fretboard and. Um, It really opens up a whole lot more harmonically, and um, you can add a lot of cool colors to a track, Um, and really it kind of all gets back to the Delta Bluesmen and their story songs, because they would use the guitar and the slide in particular to reinforce the lyric of the song, so that um, whatever they were singing about, they would emulate that, the train, or whistle, or the wind, or whatever, and that got me to thinking uh, about the guitar um, in terms of a concept really like creating a soundtrack for each song. Mm. As much as as geeky as we are about guitar and gear, it all comes down to serving the song mm-hmm. and uh, that's what I love about working with people on their projects, you know. And I always want to know what the song's about, you know, get the lyric sheet and then that helps me to think in terms of coloring the Um, coloring and helping in, in a way to bring something to the table that wasn't there before with some of these techniques
0: yeah well that's a lot of that is just all you man i've never heard anybody do anything like that some of those things Well, let's play something. Play something. Yeah, give me, give me a give me a progression. Yeah, go or, ahead. You, you I don't pick know. some. I'm just in D. You want to like a. Uh Tuning is that. So is that just? A well, G-mo? I'm
2: in. Uh, I tune to G minor. G minor. Okay. But I'm just playing on a D position. It's like
0: cross harp or
2: something. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, <laughs> I like doing that too. And um, a lot of times, um, for example, uh, tune to G and then play an A. Yeah. Um, or any um, uh, the third position um, for C and F, and and. Around here, you know, a lot of the old school cats, like, say, if you're playing with Little Buck, Little Buck Senegal, my hero and my mentor, uh, he played uh, guitar in all the heyday, the many years with Clifton Chenier, and just badass, Mm -hmm. man, just badass, plug in. Was he
0: in the Little Band of Gold?
2: uh, Well, no, he's not in the Little Band of Gold, but he plays with Charles Adcock a lot. I mean, they do projects together. Charles is such a big fan of uh, Little Bucks, too, and we kind of all grew up hearing him, and but um, he uh, he's just got a way, man. He's got his tone and phrasing. But he plays, I was going to say, he plays a lot of the horn keys because he came up in horn bands. B so, flat, E flat. B flat, E flat, and F and so forth. Like Doc, you know, like Mac, Mac does Dr. John. Yeah. you know, He thinks like horn players a lot. And I love that. So it's good for me. It keeps me on my toes. Yeah. If, if I'm tuned to A and I'm playing in B flat or whatever, uh, it's kind of good for me to mm-hmm get out of my comfort zone a little bit
0: i don't know if it's true but i heard the story maybe it was cc the guy you're talking about for those that don't don't know charles Ackott, people call him cc yeah, atcott yeah he's great he used to play with
2: buckwheat right oh yeah he had yeah he did play. had heard with buckwheat that
0: too. he had uh i don't know if this is a true story but it's a funny story he said uh maybe it was zachary who told me this that uh one day the band called him in and said cc buckwheat wants to see you in the dressing room you know and it was like an intervention type thing oh this and, sounds good already yeah and they were like oh <laughs> man like I you know and cc's like the only white dude in the band he's like man i don't know what what i did wrong you know so they're like yeah he wants to see in the dressing room so they he walks in and the whole band's there and they're like all staring at the floor kind of thing like total intervention he's like and <clears throat> buckwheat goes cc sit down we got to talk to you about your that addiction problem and he's like I don't know what you talk talking about, Buck. We, uh, he's like, Yeah, I don't even drink. I, don't, I didn't do anything. He goes, It's that little blue pedal you keep playing. He goes, You're addicted to that. Addicted. <laughs> and it was a chorus pedal. <laughs> he goes, You're using that
3: on every song. All, you got to get addi- rid of that. You're addicted, rid of to that. You're addicted to that.
2: <laughs> oh, I can just hear him. <laughs> I can just hear him. It's got to uh, be
0: true. I forget who told me that. Maybe
2: I'm to ask him. It's, it's too good to not be true. Yeah. I mean, all the potential elements are, you know. <laughs> it's got
1: to be right. Speaking. You know all those yeah. people. So <laughs>
2: well,
0: anyway, you know what else I wanted to ask you, too, before I forget, because I don't have my little cheat sheet, Sonny. Um, You have a Dumble amplifier, which that's another thing people are never going to let me live down if I don't ask you about that. How did you acquire a dumble, because you know nowadays you could buy probably a house in this neighborhood with that amp easily yeah (laughs) you could i thought about it too (laughs) no i mean uh, back in the day they were still expensive right
2: yeah they've always been expensive for their time you know for the time in the period but now just through you know yeah and the stratosphere um well, yeah, I I met Alexander through my friend Stephen Bruton, and um, I had a gig at Grant Street it's a few blocks away from here, and that uh, was my haunt, that's where my hang, I used mm-hmm. to play there all the time, and all the great, all the great blues uh, acts came through, and R&B, and all the cool, you know, soulful stuff, but anyway, we, <clears throat> so we were playing, and um, Stephen wanted to uh, start playing over here, and so we set it up for him to he and his band to open up and he had his dumble and he said man you got to try this amp out so when I, went and I plugged it in i started playing and i went oh shit mm. yeah man you know, he, he's showing me how because it, it was a bit um a little intimidating at first with an amp you don't know how it works mm-hmm. and that one in particular was is really unique and there's never been anything like it the the um, signal path and how everything works and different components of that amp. And there's a reason for everything. And it's um, just to follow the signal path and what happens and what you can do with it. So mm-hmm. it took me a little while to, you know, I just went with what Stephen had dialed in. And uh, <clears throat> so the next thing I know, I'm, I'm out at Dockside working on some tracks, and I get there's a phone call. I go upstairs in the kitchen, and it's uh, Dumble. Wow. So Alexander calls, and and I think what had happened is I gave Stephen a copy of Outward Bound, and he uh, gave it to Alexander. And Alexander said something like, I was listening to your CD, and I thought to myself, now there's a man who can use an overdrive special. He'll know what to do with it. I said, well, there's only one way to find that out. um But that's how I met him, and and I would go out to L.A. um and go hang with him. It, we, Steve and I used to go hang out with him all the time. And if I was in the city, I'd go hang with him, go eat dinner, and go hang at his place. It was it was great, man. I loved it. He's just always been a great, great guy, and a good friend to me. And and we'd start um, going to the lab. That's what I called it. It was so full of gear and stuff and um start trying things and then i was playing a, a gig in nashville by then this would have been um uh, 95 and um <clears throat> there was a uh there was a Dumble combo that i played through um it was at the rental hall that we that we would practice, you know rehearse that and mm-hmm and so forth and um so i told him about that one and he knew he knew the serial number i mean he knew everywhere every one of them yeah so he uh patterned mine we started with that as a blueprint and then i'd go over and then he would tweak i would play and he would tweak it um then once uh i guess that was yeah that had to be a little later in 95 i got mine and um um i I had it out that's all i played and he built a two by 12 cab for me he does all it by hand i mean everything um and both steven and i over the years would try to approach alexander on the idea of getting someone else to build and for him so he wouldn't be so hard on him he could sell more you know but he just couldn't give it up And, and i actually appreciated that yeah I mean, he he was so meticulous about everything. You know, like people would say, well, they opened him and they found a Radio Shack part in there. Right. If he had, had a Radio Shack part in there, it was right next to something else for a reason. I mean, you know. <laughs> you just <laughs> it, listen to him. Yeah, yeah there. That's. It's just uh, you know, there are no Radio Shack parts of mine. But I mean, he was always he had all these. Um, he had he had this, just like a. Manuals of that he had written of different mods and circuitry, and he just had a ton of them. You know, people think of the Dumble sound, but really, it's far more uh, evolved than even that. Because he, in particular, he would custom tailor the way he tweaked the amp to the player. That's what he, why he liked for you to come in and and to do that. And uh, when my friend Tommy Como. When I introduced them, he wouldn't build an app for him until Tommy went over there and played for him. Mm. He had to kind of audition. He had to audition to see if he, <laughs> he was up to it. Yeah, yeah, and he he passed, of course, flying colors, and then they became friends. And then it's like getting a Japanese sword made by this, you know <laughs> yeah, master. It's like exactly. I got to see your skills yeah, first. Exactly. you know, but um, but it's an amazing app. I mean, it's really different than any other.
0: You know, when we did that, when we did that uh, uh, session together for Joel, you had your Demeter. And I love right. the sound of that thing, man.
2: Yeah, me too. I, had that, I got that one. Um, I, I met him when I was out with uh, John Hyde on the early. It was like the second year we were out on the road with him. So he built it for me. It was right at the end of 89. Um, and um, I'd go over to his shop and try his amps. I actually met him through David Lindley. Wow. And um, David had uh, played these songs. It, it was a demo for that he did with, with Hyatt. And then later we recut those songs. and became Slow Turning, that album. And I, I want to so, ask
0: you, I mean, we're maybe it's a good way to segue into this because I don't want to talk about gear the whole time. I want to find out how you got the gig with Hyatt. Like, was that through Lindley? The
2: well, no, actually, the one that I owe that to is Ray Benson of Asleep at the Wheel.
0: Wow, man, I didn't know any of this stuff. Yeah, he
2: uh, he was doing um, production where he was producing uh, Darden Smith, a uh, really talented, gifted singer-songwriter in Austin, Texas. Um, And so uh, Ray calls me up, and then... Uh, I think I actually drove out there, drove to Austin to play on the album. And I was out in the studio and we're working on this track and uh, Ray had said, uh, said, uh, you know John Hyatt? said, uh, yeah, he's looking for a band. He's got a new album out. Raku to play it on. Uh, I said, well, I've never met him, but yeah, I've heard some of the songs, you know, and, and great, you know, but but I'm out there tuning my guitar then the next thing I know he's handing me the phone and of course this is back you know, when you still had to be plugged into something. <laughs> he stretched the phone all the way out from the oh, studio. Yeah. <laughs> and he had hide on the phone. Oh, it was wow. Like, so, John had some phone. He wants to talk to you. And I know he just put us both on the spot. You know, oh, Well, oh, oh, okay. Awkward, oh, yeah. yeah. Sure, if you want to come, I'm doing auditions. And next thing I know, the next day, they're helping me get packed up. And I didn't even have a suitcase. I had to put my clothes in a trash bag, which they call the Cajun suitcase in the parking lot.
0: I've heard it called other things, but that's a good one, a <laughs> yeah. cage suitcase. My friend from Germany used to call it a Turkish suitcase. There you go. And every, every culture, there's, a, yeah. but there's anyway. a slap in the so face. So you went straight from Austin to Nashville? I
2: went to, I went to Nashville, uh, did the audition, got the gig, went back to Austin, finished the session, went home, and then I had the album, Bring the Family. So I'm listening to the album and start learning the songs. And I go, and I, I've never done anything like this. So I called John up and I, and I told him, I said, I've never done this before, but I'm going to tell you, I know the band you want to have. And he goes, really? Because he's still auditioning bass players mm-hmm. and drummers. And I said, yeah, there's uh, David Ranson who plays bass with me. We've been playing together for a long time. And Kenneth Blubbins on drums mm-hmm. play with us in, in and out over the years and another good friend. So next thing I know, the three of us are flying. I'm going back to Nashville and go with Kenneth and Dave. So we I introduced with um I guess it's S I R and um rehearsal hall and then, so I introduced them to John and they have the equipment set up and we get up on stage and goes, Well okay, uh well how about uh, Memphis in the meantime? So Kenneth counts it off play Memphis in the meantime I mean as soon as we stopped he said that's it cancel the auditions you know wow this is it you know he, the chemistry you know he, yeah this is what we all knew was something special sure. you know and um, it wasn't but maybe 15 years 20 years later Kenneth told me that uh, you know Memphis in the meantime was the first song on the because I, I got them all the album you know uh-huh. they sent them the album actually And it's the first song on the album, and that's the only one he listened to. (laughs) (laughs) It was meant to be. And Kenny's still there. Yeah, but it wouldn't have mattered. He's still playing with him, right? It it wouldn't have mattered. You know, uh, know, when you hear Jim Keltner, I mean, I think of Jim Keltner, and I think of, you know, the greatest in the world, and that's Kenneth. Absolutely. He's one of the greatest in the world. great, man. Yeah. uh, I know that beat. Yeah. Yeah, not anybody can just jump in on that, man. Yeah. That narrows the field considerably.
0: Kenny is such a great player, man. We, I've got to play with him quite a bit, and with Zachary live at this at down here in Lafayette, and live, I think it was Festival at Katie something. I think something.
2: it was. Yeah, I think you guys. It's did like that, a yeah.
0: train, man. Once he gets going.
2: Well, he's uh, he's uh, yeah, he's truly one of the greatest drummers I have ever worked with. And, and his he's such a stylist and. Um, He's, he's just got that loosey-goosey rot I mean, it's just everything feels right. Yep. The grease is there. He yep. he was always one of our favorite drummers here, the first time I ever played with him back in the 70s. And um, then he moved to New Orleans and started hanging out with Johnny V and uh, Johnny and, uh, that's He studied under him. Mm-hmm. That was his, kind of his mentor. And then that's when he start, started to begin to master the second line, you know, but and he's still that. got the power and oh, the edge. Yeah, it's yeah, just it's, unbelievable. It's a perfect yeah So with him and Dave on bass, that yeah. was so the, yeah, who that.
0: titled the band The Goners? Was that Hyde? What
2: John did, we, he his first name was the Wishbags, Bags and we nixed that one. <laughs> that sounds like some old like <laughs> English beat thing or something. Okay, yeah. what do you think about this? John Hyde and the Wishbags, and I just remember Dead Silence and uh uh, let's come yeah, up with something you John
0: High, man. You're a lot more creative than that. And
2: then uh, he came up with the Goners and then went, like, yeah, I like that. That's yeah. kind of cool. And then, lo and behold, there was uh, goners out in California somewhere, so he had to buy. The new originals. Yeah. The originals. <laughs> he had to buy the name from them. Oh, he did? That's probably, yeah. <laughs> you know, so thinking about that. Bands I played in, if anybody had ever bought the name, probably been the most of money we ever made. <laughs>
0: I've I've only met him once. I met Hyatt once in New York. I I, I did that T V thing sessions at West Fifty Fourth one time and he was Yeah, we did that. He yeah. was a host, guest host and he was cool. Yeah. He was really cool and yeah, I told him I was time. a big, you know, little village fan. I don't know if that was the right thing to say, but he seemed really nice, but I've heard that he can be a bit cantankerous at well, times. Well
2: yeah, he he especially in the old days, you know. He he had a he had a rough um he had a rough time. Growing up and later in life, and plus he, you know, he was well known as uh, addictions, you know, and he yeah. overcame all that. And When we started playing together, man, he he had just um, uh, cleaned up and ended, entered the program, and he never, man, he never fell off the wagon. Mm. And that was nineteen eighty-seven. That was around. That was before Little Village. Oh yeah, because Keltner yeah. actually
0: told me the reason it all imploded was yeah. Well, that was... Cooter and... Right. <laughs> was, and it was uh, in Nashville. He said it was in Nashville. Uh, it was.
2: Yeah, it was a history there. They, well, they, you know, when they did... Uh, what happened is they made the album Bring the Family. So then when uh, John gets ready to go on the road, he's on, on the label, uh, he had to have a band. So that's how we came about. Mm-hmm. So the, the first year, all we did is literally play uh, the Bring the Family album and any other, the, you know, millions of songs that John had ri- already written by then. he's catalog was so de- in deep even way back then and he was such a critics darling from that particular album so everyone came out well who's he gonna have in the band you know we had <laughs> ry cooter jim keltner and nick lowe it was right. his band and they cut that album just in a few days yeah it just did it winged it you know john showed him the songs you know any kind of little Flubs, they kept it, and there was a charm about all that. And John Chalou, remember John Chalou? Oh, sure, He yeah. worked on that thing. Yeah, we He passed away last year. Yeah, a lot of them. He was have, sort yeah. of
0: an eclectic character. Shalhoub.
2: But you have to give him credit, you know. Yeah, he, he brought put it them together. together, and um, so that's that's the thing about that. So by the time you're talking with Little Village, they were trying to kind of recreate that, and there was already enough, I think, history and agenda, you know, but still i mean i can tell you i mean john's a huge fan of rise because he actually that's how they met john played in Rise band wow yeah it's all predates all of this stuff we're talking about and um even though there was whatever conflicts later um you know creative things or whatever uh, that he he's still you know we would listen to we'd listen to him in a band driving across the country back in the day we all took turns driving you know, first year. That's we did that here in the U.S. for a couple of months, and then went to Europe for two months. Did the same thing. I was going
0: to say that's probably the first gig besides Zach that got you out of Little Bridge more internationally, because I'm sure you yeah. were playing Europe all the time. Yeah,
2: we did. And um, with Zach was the first time I played in um, in Europe, like in, in France, France and Belgium, yeah. and of course in Canada and Quebec. But with John, we. Literally, you know, we got the itinerary. We got all excited because we'd never been to Switzerland and <laughs> Austria and all these places. And back, back then, of course, it was before the uh, EU and all that. And so you had to stop at every single border wow. with a carnate for the crew, which means they'd have a list of all the equipment, and they'd go through everything, and it was just a huge deal, and you had to exchange money every time. When they dropped the Borders, uh, it, was, it was a good thing. Yeah. The first tour going back over there without any Borders like that was, was awesome. But, um, yeah, so he uh, and John, I, I have to thank because, because of the attention and focus on him, you know, from that album worldwide, then the focus was on the band. Right. And, and frankly, I mean, we just went out and there was nothing like what we had out there. I mean, Rolling Stone, all the magazines came out. I mean, everybody. And we just whooped ass. Plus it, I mean, I have to not say. Not only
0: were you kicking ass, it was the mystique of having like a yeah, South Louisiana nobody band. Nobody knew who we yeah, were. It was like cool. I think one of them described
2: yeah. me as a cigar store Indian who <laughs> <laughs> just stands there emotionless. That's I mean, some I didn't New think New York about bullshit
0: right there, it sounds like.
2: <laughs> but, uh,. You know, that, that, that actually helped me. So John introduced me, really, to the world in that regard. And for my career, I mean, I've never had that kind of exposure.
3: Let's go to Memphis in the meantime, baby. Memphis in the meantime, girl. Just need a little shout about a rhythm, baby. Mix up with these country blues. I'm going to take you. These old cowboy boots For some fine Italian shoes Forget the booze and the hair sugar. we don't need none of that Oh, a little dad going oh, do your darling Underneath the pie pilot
0: So you got time just for a couple more minutes? Sure, man. Yeah. All right. Um, so Sonny just handed me this record, Live in Lafayette. Hey, you've done Live in Lafayette one time before.
2: Well, we did, uh, you know, Grant Street Grant was Street. our first uh, official live album. That's been, oh wow, man, like 11 yeah, years ago. Yeah, it's a long ago. time ago. Yeah. So, yeah. But, so uh, this is seemed, seemed like really a good cool. time to A double CD. Do it again. Wow,
0: I haven't seen one of these in a well, long Well, I
2: know. Time. It's double. And here's the thing. Um, and half of it uh is acoustic and half is electric oh ah, okay i couldn't decide what to do to be honest should i do an acoustic album i've been thinking about doing that for a long time and a lot of the fans wanted it um, i wanted to still document some of our uh, trio work with dave and brian and i and i wanted to have some guests but i wanted it uh, with steve Kahn on keyboards yeah, and uh, sam broussard on guitar he and i came up in the na- same neighborhood few blocks down Mm. the road here uh he's incredible they're both of them are singer-songwriters masters of their instruments in their own right but we've as many projects as we've all done together never the three of us at the same time it's always i'm working with steve or he's with sam me with sam and vice versa so i thought that'd be a good opportunity Mm and 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 not being able to decide which one to do, I decided to go for all of it. <laughs> and it's really more of a retrospective. It's it's songs from different yeah, times of in my career and, and you know, the albums that we've done together. And Tony and I have worked on all these albums in the past. and um, So I, I, I felt like it, it was a good... Uh, for someone who's never heard of any of, of this before, it's a good introductory kind of a thing and at the same time for fans that have been listening for a long time a lot of these songs are in a completely different light especially the acoustic material you know to hear some of those songs that were originally amped up as it were yeah you know like more of a production piece in the studio uh like um creole angel for example and um and so that you know it gives them a different interpretation of these songs and and, and as an overview, I, I I feel pretty good about it. I, I'm really. Man, happy I can't wait to chair. Out. I'm going to
0: listen to this on the way back. Yeah, this is great.
2: And oh, it's cool on the acoustic um, material. And we started doing this. We went out on the road to kind of warm up and kind of get a groove going. You know, it is. You know, okay, let's make a live album. we're haven't Played in two months. Right. <laughs> uh, that's not a good idea. So we were out playing shows, and uh, <clears throat> I did all all of my work his own uh, resonator guitar and um then um, steve played accordion um and sam played his martin parlor guitar it sounds incredible uh, uh brian played the cajon so in lieu of the drum kit he's sitting on the cajon you know, the other uh, light percussion instrument and you hit one side of it sounds kind of like a kick drum you hit the other side there's a snare inside and Get bit of the snare and he had a few cymbals and trinkets and little things to tap and hit so that created a lot of space and uh, i think that's what really helped all the acoustic instruments to breathe more and dave played the uh, ukulele bass i fell in love with that thing he brought it to the studio on the last album uh, bound by the blues and and we ended up using it like four times. I think I
0: saw um, Hutch, the plays of Bonnie Raid had one, too, recently.
2: Oh, it's, it's getting to be the thing yeah. now. Everybody, Because of the composite strings, it sounds kind of like an upright, yeah. but not. Right. And it's cool when you see this little bitty thing plugged in, it has this huge sound. Uh, so that, that that's really cool. I thought that helped um, as far as interpreting some of those old songs and... Some old blues covers and kind of grew up learning how to play on, and um, I, th- I think that's one thing that, that makes us stand out and pretty special. And then, and, and to have like we do with the shows, to start out with the acoustic set, take a short break, and come out and amp it up, then it was more dynamic that way. I love
0: that shot, man, on the back, that's pretty it cool, looks huh? like
2: some old 70s kind of. <laughs> Really and we cool did all show. that here at the A C A Theater, KDS of oh, yeah. the Arts and which is a few blocks from here. Yeah. Made sense because Tony's here and all his gear, his studio. I was
0: also oh, Tony went here and did
2: remote recording mobile. Yeah, now here's the deal. So our friend we called up um Larry at API, Larry Dropa. We've gotten to be real good friends over the years. And I've been using API for, well, Bobby Phil, R.S. Phil's when it turned me on to it in the studio. Is that what you in, use on your, uh,
0: for pre's on the
2: record? Yeah, yeah. always. Yeah, they That's my great, main. Man. I have a lunchbox, they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's the, the vintage you know, API 312 mic card 550A tone. The uh, 512 f- or whatever they no, are. Is that what they are? 550A yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 550 EQ. Uh, uh, so, anyway, <clears throat> I call up Larry. We you know tony was setting up his diagram to figure out all his inputs and how we're going to do all this and between uh everything he has a little bit i have and brian our drummer and then sam broussard he's got his own you know, mics and stuff they real cool and so i called up larry and i asked him and i said well you know we're, we're just a, uh tony says we're a few mic prees and he short and And he always offered to help you know on an album or anything like that. I said, "What will you think about maybe loaning a few, you you know, less a few mic pre's and EQs?" And he says, "Well, how about this?" Said, uh, "How about I send down this forty-eight channel console that you two just finished their live album?" Holy shit! (laughs) So he had the whole thing, you know, crated up, freighted down here, and um, from outside of Maryland, uh, Annapolis, outside of Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, his only, um, his only, the only thing I had to agree to is that no one erased the Edge's name on the, oh. mass, you know, he put the mask tape down, it. everybody has their faders, you know, and the and Edge had his, and so when he arrived he apparently had plexiglass, he'd already <laughs> <laughs> screwed in. Wow. But it's so cool, so Tony had his world set up in the wings uh, of the theater in this venue, um and 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 it really made for a really unique experience and and I knew people would be milling in and out of there, you know It's slaffy, Louisiana, you know security wasn't so great, but that's okay, so kind of a little party vibe. I went can't on wait there. to hear it now even more well, yeah, then we had uh, our world on stage with the monitors and and then I had uh my front of house engineer uh, he came in um and and was work and did that for the house, so we had. Kind of a multi-dimensional experience, <laughs> <laughs> and we recorded three nights and took the best of that, and and that's that's uh, recorded a lot in Lafayette, and and, and uh, nice. also vinyl, man. We did wow, and uh, <clears throat> Jim Demain, my mastering engineer. We've worked for many many years in Nashville, and he he mastered separately for, because a lot of people do. They just take their digital masters and make vinyl, and it sounds like crap, mm-hmm. but he. It had a separate chain he you know loosened up on the limiting and so that they could do all that when they're cutting the lacquers at the plant for for vinyl so I'm real excited about that it looks great yeah I'll bet on that back it looked that yeah. looks like some big fat old
0: analog film thing
2: yeah that's cool that. huh? yeah. yeah I love it <laughs>
0: Because you you know a lot about equipment and gear and things like that. Even probably, I guess, back when you were working with Zachary, it was pretty minimal and simplistic. But you've always gotten great guitar sounds. I mean, where did you learn about all that stuff? Like amp
2: combinations, just a trial and error? Yeah, just just plugged in and started playing and trying different things. And I had the advantage of, um, when I was a kid, I actually started recording... um, pretty young and and that came about because my brother my, my older brother steve would bring people over he would want them to hear me play and i couldn't i sucked i couldn't play anything <laughs> to sit down and play for somebody like a song yeah and i had a couple of early bad experiences with that there was a party my parents uh, were at and they all want to hear me play oh no <laughs> oh it was horrible man <laughs> fortunately everyone in the room was drunk <laughs> All the, old, all, the, all the folks are drunk, and I'm in a sweaty bus. Played slide slides, a My sunny. dad comes and says, I don't want you to worry. You're so sweet. I don't want you to worry about it. Now they're all in there. They've all been drinking. <laughs> You're going to do just fine. It's just going to be like when you grow up. It set me up for my whole career. You know? I'm almost 16 years old. i was probably 15, um, 14 uh, at that point. But uh, But that pushed me to start being prepared so i started uh i bought i got a reel to reel you know uh, for christmas i taught my folks into that and it was an uh, early uh panasonic that you could do sound on sound and sound with sound mm-hmm. so you could re- record in one channel and you know run the output from that channel into the other and stack them and mm-hmm. uh so i started making have a little repertoire of songs so when somebody my brother bring him over I said well okay here we go and ah, i could sit down and yeah. have my backing pre-production and my pre-production
0: <laughs> that's when it all started <laughs> of course you didn't know what it was called then
3: no i
2: had no clue yeah i had no clue at all um <clears throat> but i that that's how i got started recording and st- to begin experimenting i mean all we really had back then I, when the first uh fuzz tone came out the maestro fuzz tone, yeah I brought that thing home. Um, we brought the Echoplex home. Uh, after the Echoplex, it was never the same. That was To me, that was just the most incredible It's still incredible pretty sound. yeah, incredible still, sounding. Yeah, I still have them. And that use first them. Van Halen album, yeah. that Echoplex,
0: man. Is that what you used on Outward Bound, that slapback? Is that an Plex? I had, I,
2: had, I had a... Uh, my Echoplex was in the process of dying during the track. As a bummer. But we got a couple others being in Nashville, and I was able to finish out the track overdub. You know, maybe we just ran it through. I think that's what we did. Just because there's a picture of you like yeah. dialing in some stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. and uh, um, and then um, I used that. I, I took that on the road with me and I was with Clifton. I had all of those gigs with him, and then the early stuff with Zach. Uh, at one point. And, and actually on through the, uh, part of the eighties with a band I had, uh, called Bayou Rhythm. Mm. And, um, at one point it, it crashed and couldn't find anyone to work on it. And, and by then pedals were coming out. I could put in my guitar case. So once again, practicality wins over the hump. Yeah, it, Sure.
0: Well, it, the DynaComp. I, I mean, I don't really usually talk gear, but since you're here, people are going to say you're sitting with Sonny Landreth to ask him about, you know. Um, so, you, when when did you get your first compressor, compressor? Because that's a good yeah that's, component for slide playing. That was playing, another right?
2: big moment. That was. I was working with uh, Gigi Shen, who's a uh, a great singer from down here, uh, and he had a he had quite the name. And he's still, he's still singing, yeah. he's an incredible singer, you know, gee. So I got in this band, and, and we travel a lot. And this would have been in right before I started playing with Clifton, actually, mean like 77 or 8, maybe. And um, and we'd play six nights a week and did that for a year. Um, and somewhere during that, early on, in the beginning of that, I was in a local music store... No, you know what it was? I I, I love the sound that Larry Carlton had mm. on the Crusaders. And I read in a Guitar Player Magazine interview how he plugged into his MXR Dynacomp into his Marshall. It's 335 into the Dynacomp into the Marshall. Mm. And I so, said, well, I got to check that out. So I got one, got it at a local music store, took it out. I think we are playing in Morgan City. I still remember this. <clears throat> and I plugged into it. And at first, I, it's like I couldn't play. I wasn't used to having all the space taken oh, up. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So it was limiting, but it was also bringing everything up in between where I would be like breathing, you know? And yeah. all of a sudden that's like... It's like,
0: like skating or something.
2: Yeah, it's ex- it really was. And it, and it freaked me out. And i go to hold notes up, but I'd go to sustain a note and then just bloom and i go oh well that was cool yeah <laughs> okay i gotta keep working on this <laughs> mm. so i got hooked it was hard at first so it was awkward and um but once i got used to it and i was i was hooked and uh that was basic approach for a long time and the Dynacop was a long time yeah long i don't time. know if you
0: remember it was a long time ago uh, robert Keeley had asked me if i knew you i said yeah i know sonny a little bit and he goes i want to get him one of my compressors and, and you did yeah so yeah i, so got you, him I same, have you to thank for that yeah well i just i said i'll send it to me and i'll get it to Sonny. or i said that's, do you mind if i give your address that's right. or something I mean, sure, yeah. yeah and yeah. and that was that was a long time right? ago that that's when time. he had those three knob or two knob, yeah. whatever they are they're still a great compressor i still use mine yeah i'd use that for a long
2: mm-hmm. time and um they're all you know it's like how to use it knowing when to use it and so forth um i tend to turn them on and leave them on leave them on and find a sweet spot so that it um, doesn't over squash things yeah and still be really it's dynamic always, yeah. but it's i tell you it's great for clean tones when you're playing solo pieces mm. speaking of like like finger style like chat but that kind of approach um that way you can i, I like an even sound from top to bottom so that um, when you're playing the melody, but you still have uh, articulation on the low end on the on the alternate picking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's great for that, to even that out. Uh, too much, though, it, you just lose all the dynamics. and mm-hmm. uh, That's a fine line. I yeah. remember
0: the day I came over when you played on my uh, solo record. You played on a track. It was actually across the street. We recorded across the street. And you had, whoops, you had some kind of... Uh, some kind of compressor, and it sounded like the amp was on fire. It just sounded <laughs> amazing. I don't know what it was. Well, what? if
2: it wasn't, the, it was probably the uh, uh, at that point, that would have been the um, that would have been uh, Mike Pierre, probably Analog Man, yeah, probably was because I started using those. He makes good stuff oh. too. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh, one more thing I want to ask you about a lot of people don't realize you wrote this song if, if you're Neville Brothers fans you wrote co-wrote Congo Square Congo Square yeah which I played it a million times with those guys <laughs> and we never cool. get the turnaround right because <laughs> it would always be I don't know they, they changed it or something Charlie changed it but what does it go to like a flat 6 thing is that the turnaround
2: it, the walk around? is it a G G minor what's a D minor D minor yeah, yeah. I we used to I do it in G well, my girlfriend at the time, she was from New Orleans, and uh, we were living here is back in early 80s, 80, 81, 82. And uh, she would always talk about Congo Square. And that got me thinking about it and kind of doing a little history on it. And that's uh, I got inspired about it to write the song. And um, the, the, inter- the tr- truly interesting thing, and this is how synchronicity works, and uh, I believe in that sort of thing. Um, I was actually thinking of the Neville Brothers. I thought, you know, this could be a good song for them. And at the same time, uh, I was influenced by a song called Force of Nature by John Mayall. And it was one of those songs that gets in your records so for us and when you go to jam with somebody, you pull it out. Right. And I was afraid that I'd ripped him off, so I went back and listened to it and it was nothing like it. I was thrilled. It's but it's funny how, you know, in your mind it started in one place and after 15 years or something you know it's totally evolved into something different yeah. rhythmically and um so uh, i came up with that and and fast forward to many years later uh both of them ended up doing it and and that's how i met bobby field my producer oh. for many years he was producing um john mayall's album uh, a sense of place and bobby wanted to do two of my songs and uh, so I flew out to LA and and that's how I met John Mayall and worked with him. And then the Neville Bros cut. So just wow. a show nice, never You can
3: hear him in the distance. That's when the all people gather and they play the drums at night in Kranco Bay
0: somebody can I play you that acoustic real quick and I'll just use this mic
2: The thing most people do, they play it all minor, which thought... which works fine, you know. But actually, uh, the one's the only minor chord. And the four and the five are major, but they're ninth chords. And R- then the, okay. the turn on is a walk-up. It's really a four chord. With what? When I learned in school, the old thing was um, first inversion. You put the third in the bass. So if uh, you have the... Right. Um, so you go to the so. G chord with the B in the bass. Yeah. You walk up a whole set with the A chord with the C sharp in the bass. And then the, the riff. Yeah. And this works, too. You know, the old yeah. riff and like Hot Tamale Baby Clifton did. and yeah. And, and uh, Muddy uh, Waters, too. No, if you play yeah. that man
1: no.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah
2: so this it's a flow cell at to the top nice. you know, it's yeah. 6, minor 6, and then flat 5
0: and then the turnaround chords are what, what, so there you what go. Go. Sure. Okay.
2: okay see that's
0: how I'm more likely play let me see it right real quick I don't know I've never learned the real
2: this, thing uh, we never did that with oh yeah, I see the, yeah but knocked it up mm-hmm. I can, can't hear on the Martin here, something like that mm-hmm. that's and then anyway that's 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 the original and we did we cut it in the in the studio uh that was in 84 we were we put it out in 85 then recut it um in <clears throat> um um 95 for south of I-10 um with uh Mark Knopfler on guitar and Alan Tussain on the piano. Wow. And so we uh, <clears throat> just reinterpreted the whole thing. So that each of us had a verse, and the playing was like about what that verse was. So it was oh. like, like snake dance. Mark did all these real snaky lines. And, you know, it's it really cool. The outro on that thing its one of my favorite things that ever happened.
0: Yeah, well, man, that about says it all right
2: there, Sonny. Yeah, my most out-of-tune version today. Well, this
0: is, you know, there's a natural chorusing effect. <laughs> I think that's great, man. Thank you so much again yeah, for we don't need your no time. blue chorus, yeah, No, We don't need no, bl- we get
2: to no blue We chorus, ain't addicted though.
0: to any of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for doing this, man. It's
2: awesome. yeah, my pleasure, Shane. I think it's awesome you're doing it. Thanks. Congratulate you, you and all your success and oh man, your thank gig you. and all That's just great, man. Beautiful work. I just
0: want to be like you when I grow up. You know, that's <laughs> what I tell people in my podcast. It's like you guys are doing your own stuff. You well, know. Uh,
2: growing up's got nothing to do with it, but yeah, let's not grow up. I, I appreciate and
0: it. thank you, Tony. Tony Daigle.
2: Tony Daig, a oh, man. Okay, now Tony, get to work. Let's tune those vocals. <laughs> Actually, for once, it's my guitar, does a string go that flat?
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you're still here, you're a trooper. Hope you enjoyed enjoyed it and maybe learned some new things about Sonny. I know I did. As always, love your reviews and comments on iTunes. Your ratings helps the thing move up the charts. Let's see what else. The tune you're listening to now is from my solo record called Dirty Power. And this is a tune called Mr. Ed. And that's Sonny and myself playing on it. Jim Keltner and Hutch Hutchison. So if you like Sonny might want to check that out. Uh, Opening track was from Outward Bound. I played some stuff off his new live from Lafayette. A couple things uh, from um, South of I-10. And a John Hyatt tune, Memphis In The Meantime. Live version. See you next time.